0: Welcome to a top Cast, and now to part four of my series on knowledge and ignorance where we're going through Popper's lecture on the sources of knowledge and of ignorance and I provide some usually lengthy expositions and commentary where Popper has been coming from and what we've been talking about is the use of observations in order to find some knowledge about the world and the use of rationality or our reason in order to find out knowledge about the world. But looked at through the Popperian lens, the correct way of trying to figure out how these things come together in order to construct knowledge. Where we'll get to today is the exciting part about fallibilism, how it is that we can finally explain, in part, why it is that despite having access to reality through our observations, or interpretations of our observations, and access to reality through the use of our rationality our capacity to reason about all of this stuff, that nonetheless we still manage to make mistakes. Errors are everywhere. And so Popper manages to reach this place by standing on the shoulders of philosophical giants. There are antecedent ideas to his. There are predecessors in the philosophical traditions to him. And he is kind of combining the best parts of the ideas of the ancients and the classics in order to come up with an epistemology that is unrivaled absolutely unrivaled, when looked at as a whole. Others take bits and pieces of this and mash it together and end up producing errors of their own, end up taking things in the wrong direction, end up not understanding how it is that we can have knowledge and the knowledge can be conjectural. A model, a statement, an explanation of reality that's out there that is objective, that isn't going to be the final truth and can always be improved. This is all accounted for in the work of Karl Popper. And he's gradually unpacking this idea for us throughout this lecture. So far, we've explained the history of better ideas in epistemology, the better ideas that Popper says come to us from Britain via people like Bacon and the empiricist notion that you yourself, you can observe stuff and come to know stuff. And also from the continent of Europe, places like France, And people like Descartes, who gave us the notion that we ourselves, as individuals, we can learn by applying our reason. Great stuff. Popper admits this, and I admit this too. Geniuses, both of them, and important anti-authoritarian traditions in both places grew up around these ideas, but also ultimately wrong. It gave us progress beyond mysticism and purely religious ideas, progress beyond the authority of kings and priests But ultimately, these ideas, the empiricism of Britain and the rationalism of the continental Europeans, also leads to a kind of authoritarianism. Popper today gets through these guys, Bacon and Descartes, and manages to finally come to fallibilism and its long history. He traces it back to the pre-Socratic philosophers, and chief among those is... Xenophanes. Properly, he's often called a poet, but really his works on epistemology are famous among those who have enjoyed Popper over the years. And now, of course, they're being reignited, so to speak, by people reading The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. So it's worth perhaps beginning today's episode with that, what is becoming, I would say, famous quote from Xenophanes. And it goes, quote, The gods did not reveal from the beginning all things to us, but in the course of time, Through seeking, we may learn and know things better. But as for certain truth, no man has known it, nor shall he know it, neither of the gods, nor yet of all the things of which I speak. For even if by chance he were to utter the final truth, he himself would not know it. For all is but a woven web of guesses. End quote. From Xenophanes, a woven web of guesses. That's knowledge. And of course, that passage appears in part in the beginning of infinity. It is of fundamental importance. Knowledge is guessed. It is conjectural. It consists of our interpretations of the world and indeed its interpretation all the way down. Our observations, well, observations are what our mind is doing in order to interpret the goings-on in the brain. These electrical crackles, as David Deutsch sometimes refers to them, neuronal firings in the brain, that's what our mind is trying to conjure into knowledge. Via a process, we don't really understand. We just know that it's going on. We know that these neural firings are going on and the mind is interpreting these. But where do the neural firings come from? Well, from other nerves that are firing. In the case of sight, it's because somewhere on the retina, some cells have been excited and they've sent signals down the optic nerve and why have those cells been excited because photons of light have entered the eye and all of this this long chain of causation this explanation about what sight is applies has analogues in all of our other senses as well and these channels of information are imperfect error prone things can go wrong they can misfire and we can never be sure we've never had a misfiring at any time But through the careful application of reason, we can, if we're lucky, correct some errors. We can sift some of the truth from some of the falsity, but never be sure about any of it because, again, this is all a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of guessing that what we're getting from our senses in some way, shape or form is providing us accurate information. But how can we know that? Well, we don't. We have to have theories. Our observations are theory-laden. We can explain what's going on with observation, but the explanations themselves are liable to improvement, to change, to being refuted, overturned over time. And this is what it means for our observations to be theory-laden, which is just to say it's just a special case of a kind of guess that we have about the world, what our observations mean, what they should mean, what we think they mean. It is interpretations all the way down from our ideas in our mind about mathematics, about which we think we're certain, our observations about the world, which we think we can't be in doubt about. It is all interpretation. It's all conjectural. But not all interpretations are equal. No, of course not. There is such a thing as better and worse interpretations, better and worse ideas. This is an objective matter. It's not like, you've got your interpretation and I have mine, let's just call it a day. People do indeed interpret fossils as, for example, evidence of Noah's flood or some clever deception by God. But the correct interpretation is dinosaurs. That's what we know to be the case. The dinosaurs once walked the earth and they sank in mud piles and they got preserved when those mud piles were turned into rock over time, leaving an imprint of bones. That's how we know dinosaurs exist. But our ideas about dinosaurs have themselves evolved over time. They have changed. They have improved. At no point do we say, that's it. It's all settled. That's the final truth about the dinosaurs. We understand everything about dinosaurs. Here's a certainly true statement about dinosaurs. We can't know this. All we can know is that we have a better explanation now than we have in the past. We've improved things. We've come to know things. And the difference, as always, between an interpretation that invokes superstition, you know, something about the flood, the great flood of Noah, explaining why the dinosaur fossils appear where they do, and the explanation that... Well, over 62 million years ago, there were these great beasts walking the earth and eventually they got wiped out and some of them have been preserved from well before that time up until that time in these stratas of rock that we can see beneath the earth. The difference between the biblical ideas and the scientific ideas is, as always, good explanations. But good explanations are interpretations. But good interpretations. Good explanations. There really is a... Closer to reality interpretation. A better interpretation. There really is such a thing as accuracy. Like, this is true even in language. Better and worse translations from one language into another. People know this. We don't just say... Well, it's all interpretations. If you're interpreting from Spanish into English, well, it's just your interpretation. No, there is a better interpretation. A competent interpreter is going to do a better job than someone who doesn't understand Spanish at all, for example. And so, too, in science. Anyone can learn the method. Anyone can learn how to go about error correction. But there is a difference between good explanations, good interpretations about what the observations mean and what the reasoning implies, and terrible interpretations or completely fictitious and mythical interpretations. But we can't get away from this idea that it's guesswork, it's interpretation. But of course, it's, as I say, more than justice. It's not just pure guesswork. We are checking and comparing against reality, observations, one interpretation checked against another kind of interpretation. It's just that we're not deriving these interpretations, reading them from the so-called book of nature. We're not inducing them in the sense that people like to say we use this method of induction of repeated observations in order to derive some kind of general law. We mentioned this last time. In fact, we ended on this, talking about how, well, let's go to Popper. This is where we ended. We talked about how Aristotle talked about induction. But he seemed to mean two different kinds of things. One, Popper said, was a method by which we are led to intuit some general principle. That's what he said in the Menno. And the other sense in which Aristotle uses this was a method of adducing. This was evidence-positive evidence rather than critical evidence or counterexamples. So there in Aristotle, we had this idea that we could become more confident in something because we gathered the evidence up and it mounted up and it became convincing at a certain point, rather than in the Popperian sense where the evidence is critical, ruling out certain ideas. As Popper says, quote... The first method seems to me to be the older one, and the one which can be better connected with Socrates and his meutic method of criticism and counterexamples. Just by the way, I'm going to be using this word meutic again and again, as we did in the last episode. It means the method of questioning, the method of questioning, the Socratic method of questioning that Socrates was famous for using. But even here, there are kind of two versions of Socrates that I will come back to about whether or not this method of questioning got us to some certainly true ideas or whether or not it just revealed our ignorance and enabled us along the way to construct something like fallible knowledge or incomplete knowledge or conjectural knowledge, call it what you like. Popper goes on to say about this these two forms of induction that were in Aristotle. He says, quote, The second method seems to originate in the attempt to systematize induction logically, or as Aristotle puts it, to construct a valid syllogism which springs out of induction. This, to be valid, must, of course, be a syllogism of perfect or complete induction, complete enumeration of instances, and ordinary induction in the sense of the second method here mentioned is just a weakened and invalid form of this valid syllogism, End quote. So there we have in Aristotle this attempt, as many have attempted over the years, people like Hume and all the way through to the modern Bayesians of trying to systematize this method of repeated observations into some way of constructing certain knowledge, or at least knowledge that we are highly confident in, probably true, and so on and so forth. Popper also said there at the end that Aristotle described Socrates by saying, quote, Socrates raised questions but gave no answers, for he confessed that he did not know. And then Popper goes on to explain, Thus, Socrates' Meutic is not an art that aims at teaching any belief, but one that aims at purging or cleansing the soul of its false beliefs, its seeming knowledge, its prejudices. It achieves this by teaching us to doubt our own convictions. Fundamentally, the same procedure is part of Bacon's induction. And that brings us to today's readings. We are up to section 9 of On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance. So let's go on. Popper writes in this part, quote, The framework of Bacon's theory of induction is this. He distinguishes in the novum organum between a true method and a false method. His name for the true method, interpretation naturae, is ordinarily translated by the phrase interpretation of nature. And his name for the false method, anticipatio mentis, by anticipation of the mind. Obvious as these translations may seem, they are not adequate. What Bacon means by interpretatio Naturae is, I suggest, the reading of, or better still, the spelling out of the book of nature. Galileo, in a famous passage of his Il Sagatore, of which Mario Bunge has kindly reminded me, speaks of that great book which lies before our eyes, I mean the universe, and we can compare this to Descartes' discourse, end quote. So there Popper is saying that when... Bacon appears to be talking about interpretation as he does in his works. He's really talking about seeing the truth of the book of nature. It's not interpretation in the Popperian sense. The word actually seems to have the completely opposite meaning to what it does today. Back then, this idea of interpretation or the similar older word that was used at the time means simply reading, simply reading the words from the page As Popper explains better than I can, he goes on, quote, The term interpretation has, in modern English, a decidedly subjectivist or relativist tinge. When we speak of Rudolf Serkin's interpretation of the Emperor Concerto, we imply that there are different interpretations, but that this one is Serkin's, end quote. Rudolf Serkin was a famous pianist who was famous for particularly playing Beethoven stuff really well. Popper goes on to say, of Rudolf Serkin, we do not, of course, wish to imply that Serkin's is not the best, the truest, the nearest to Beethoven's intentions, but although we may be unable to imagine that there is a better one, by using the term interpretation, we imply that there are other interpretations or readings, leaving the question open whether some of these other readings may or may not be equally true I have here used the word reading as a synonym for interpretation, not only because the two meanings are so similar, but also because reading and to read have suffered a modification, analogous to that of interpretation and to interpret, except that in the case of reading, both meanings are still in full use. In the phrase, I have just read John's letter, We have the ordinary, non-subjectivist meaning, but I read this passage of John's letter quite differently, or perhaps my reading of this passage is very different. That may illustrate a subjectivist or relativist meaning of the word reading. I assert that the meaning of interpret, though not in the sense of translate, has changed in exactly the same way, except... ...that the original meaning, perhaps reading aloud for those who cannot read themselves, has been practically lost. Today, even the phrase, the judge must interpret the law, means that he has a certain latitude in interpreting it. While in Bacon's time, it would have meant that the judge had a duty to read the law as it stood and to expound it, and to apply it, in the one and only right way. Interpretato juris, or ligus, means either this or, alternatively, the expounding of the law to the layman. It leaves the legal interpreter no latitude. At any rate, no more than would be allowed to say a sworn interpreter translating a French legal document. End quote. So there we go. This is the way in which the language has changed over time. I should say, I often go on about, philosophy is not about debating the meanings of words, but this is not a debate about the meanings of words, but that the substance of what people are literally intending, like what is their theory. It's a little bit confusing because we've got, as I say, we've got interpret being used by Bacon in precisely the opposite way to the modern meaning of the word, or at least in some modern meanings of the word. And so that actually is a problem here for the history of ideas. Popper goes on. Thus, the translation, the interpretation of nature, is misleading. It should be replaced by something like the true reading of nature, analogous to the true reading of the law. And I suggest that reading the book of nature as it is, or better still, spelling out the book of nature, is what Bacon meant. End quote. So this is just... Popper speaking to other philosophers, Popper saying that when Bacon is talking about interpretations of nature, he's not talking about, well, different ways in which we can come to understand scientifically reality. No, Bacon is saying there is no leeway for doing that. What we're doing is we're reading directly. We're getting knowledge straight from nature. Your observations guarantee perfect truth. That's what he means by interpretation. That's the way in which the word used to be used. That's why he says that interpret, interpreting nature, should be regarded as, again, going back, quote, spelling out the book of nature. That's what Bacon meant going on with Popper, quote, the point is that the phrase should suggest the avoidance of all interpretation in the modern sense, and it should not contain, more especially, any suggestion of an attempt to interpret what is manifest in nature in the light of non-manifest causes or of hypotheses, for all this would be an anticipatio mentis in Bacon's sense. It is a mistake, I think, to ascribe to Bacon the teaching that hypotheses or conjectures may result from his method of induction, for Baconian induction results in certain knowledge rather than in conjecture. Now, of course, we know that Popper doesn't think this, so just for the listener, especially people who might be new to this, what Popper's saying there is that Bacon's version of induction... It was thought to result in certain knowledge. This is what it was intended to do. But Popper doesn't believe this, of course. Popper does not endorse the idea of certain knowledge full stop. Popper's just saying this is what Bacon thinks. This is what other people who endorse a Baconian view of knowledge think. And this is what almost everyone who endorses some kind of induction thinks, except perhaps the Bayesians who only think it results in not certain knowledge, but probably certain knowledge or something like that. But, of course, the idea that it results in knowledge that is true with some probability, well, that claim is apparently certain. Or is it? If it's not, if there is some possibility of Bayesianism being completely wrong, then we've got fallibilism, with some needless assumptions about how to calculate the probability of any claim, whilst, all the while, assuming it could always be false. That is to say, strictly false with probability one. (laughs) Anyway, let's go on with what Popper says. Quote, As to the meaning of Anticipatio mentis, we have only to quote Locke. Quote, Men give themselves up to the first anticipations of their mind, end quote, from conduct understanding. Popper goes on. This is practically a translation from Bacon, and it makes it amply clear that anticipatio means prejudice or even superstition. We can also refer to the phrase anticipatio deorum which means harbouring naive or primitive or superstitious views about the gods. But to make matters still more obvious, prejudice, from Descartes, also derives from a legal term. And according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it was Bacon who first introduced the verb to prejudice into the English language, in the sense of to judge adversely in advance. That is, in violation of the judge's duty, End quote. In other words, for Bacon, there are only two possibilities. Either you read from the book of nature, you believe your eyes and ears, as it were, you believe they are delivering you the truth, and you cannot be deceived in that way by carefully observing. So it's either that, you've either got all that, or it's superstitious nonsense. It's prejudice. It's a prejudice of the mind. It's pure guesswork. It's some kind of silliness. There's no middle ground. See the truth or be deceived. But, of course, there is a flip side to this so-called deception, this, this, this wrong-headed view that, well, Bacon thinks it's a wrong-headed view. And the flip side of this is that deception might be considered here to just be hiding the truth. Okay, that's what we say when, you know, someone's deceiving us. They're hiding the truth from us. Now, of course, deception of that kind does have a pejorative sense in our language, but hiding the truth is just what reality actually does. We can't get at the final truth. It's veiled it is there, but it needs to be uncovered. It needs to be interpreted. And by uncovered, I don't mean to finally reveal the final truth. The, 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 the coverings are infinite, if you like. It's not that some prejudice hides it or some greater power is hiding it. It's merely that we ourselves are fallible and cannot read the book of nature directly. So what else is there for it? but to to guess at it and then to check in some way by careful attempts at refutation, by criticising, testing and comparing and so on. Popper goes on to say, quote, Thus the two methods are, one, the spelling out of the open book of nature, leading to knowledge or episteme, and two, the prejudice of the mind that wrongly prejudices and perhaps misjudges nature, leading to doxa or mere guesswork and to the misreading of the book of nature. This latter method, rejected by Bacon, is in fact a method of interpretation in the modern sense of the word. It is the method of conjecture or hypothesis, a method of which, incidentally, I happen to be a convinced advocate, end quote. So there we have Popper admitting, <laughs> he's a Popperian, <laughs> he endorses the idea of the method of conjecture, that it's guesswork, that what we're doing is constructing this woven web of guesses, and he goes on to say, quote, How can we prepare ourselves to read the book of nature, properly or truly? Bacon's answer is by purging our minds of all anticipations, all conjectures, all guesses, or prejudices. There are various things to be done in order to so purge our minds. We have to get rid of all sorts of idols, or generally held false beliefs, for these distort our observations. But we have also, like Socrates... To look out for all sorts of counter-instances by which to destroy our prejudices concerning the kind of thing whose true essence or nature we wish to ascertain. Like Socrates, we must, by purifying our intellects, prepare our souls to face the eternal light of essences or natures. Compare this to St. Augustine's work. Our impure prejudices must be exercised by the invocation of counter-instances. Only after our souls have been cleansed in this way may we begin the work of spelling out diligently the open book of nature, the manifest truth. End quote. And I just thought, is this not reminiscent of the modern idea from psychology and philosophy that if only you can rid yourself of biases and things like the list of logical fallacies, then you will not fall into error. Then you Will be one of the cleansed so to speak okay so they don't use the word cleansed but educated well educated well-informed high information rather than that dreaded low information qualified perhaps qualified to read the newspapers <laughs> you know this even happens in schools and undergraduate university now you know they do these courses on critical thinking not to say that this is all useful stuff it's not it's useful stuff but the the message sometimes is well you're a special person now that you've been through this course you've got the special knowledge you've got the keys to be able to unlock understanding the newspaper better than other people, better than the man on the street, certainly. That man on the street, he's going to be filled with prejudices and biases and he doesn't understand the logical fallacies. You now know what straw man is. You now know what argument from authority is. You now know what ad hominem is. You've got the list of logical fallacies. You've remembered them off by heart. You are not going to fall into those errors yourself now, are you? (laughs) you've been cleansed of the errors okay so this is the modern version of this it's either this or as I said last time some of them maybe you can't cleanse yourself from some of the biases and prejudices maybe they're just there baked into your genes this is evolutionary psychology that we are just condemned to make certain errors condemned to be well supposedly racist and sexist and all sorts of horrible stuff like that It's just there in our genes. I often wonder, you know, like, does that mean that the evolutionary psychologist who's explaining these kind of biases that we have, that they themselves admit that they must have those awful qualities? Well, presumably not. Presumably somehow they've cleansed themselves, in which case... Well, what does that say about evolutionary psychology? These ideas and impulses we have can themselves be changed. They're just ideas. They're just parts of the mind that we can, if we try hard, correct. They're errors that we can correct. Let's keep going. Popper says, In view of all this, I suggest that Baconian, and also Aristotelian, induction is the same, fundamentally as the Socratic-Mautic, that is to say, the preparation of the mind by cleansing it of prejudices in order to enable it to recognize the manifest truth or to read the open book of nature. Descartes' method of systematic doubt is also fundamentally the same. It is a method of destroying all false prejudices of the mind in order to arrive at the unshakable basis of self-evident truth. End quote. There we go, this is Popper giving a masterclass in this idea, seeing the similarities of these apparently disparate philosophies and just going to the heart of the matter. Well, they're all kind of making the same mistake. Surprisingly here, perhaps, even Socrates is being thrown in with this, socrates meutic, this method of questioning, because it depends on what version of Socrates we're talking about here, because Socrates comes to us filtered through the words of Plato, and so we don't get a consistent view of the character of Socrates. Sometimes he is the consummate fallibilist. And at other times, well, this method of questioning is supposed to lead you to, well, to be able to distill out a final truth, a self-evident truth of some kind or other. You know, So he got most of the right idea there. But... This method of questioning doesn't leave you with some final truth. It just leaves you with knowledge, one hopes, the correction of errors along the way. And with Descartes, Descartes' method of doubt, remember what this is? You know, he's sitting there in the meditations by the fire, he's sipping a little bit of wine, he's a little bit drowsy, and he thinks, Well, have I fallen asleep? Am I now dreaming? You know, a little bit too much wine, a little bit too drowsy. I'm sitting by the fire. Is the fire really there? I can doubt whether the fire is really there. I might be laying in my bed. Whoa, if I'm able to do that, maybe I can doubt whether or not my arms and legs are here. Maybe I can doubt whether I have a body and so he goes this method of doubt until he's left with but hold on something's doing the doubting something's doing the doubting that something is me my mind I am I exist every time I think something like specifically when I think this I exist thing then I exist or I think I'm trying to doubt that I exist then I exist okay this is his method of doubt but this would mean that, that that idea this is the one thing you can't doubt that you exist why because presumably all the error has been purged there's just no way you could not, you could not be in possession of this truth that you exist. Or as I like to put it, and many people are now in the position of saying, I just can't imagine how it is, that while I'm having this thought that I exist, then how could I possibly not exist? I I can't imagine it. (laughs) But as I like to say, one's lack of imagination is not a proof. If it's a proof of anything, it's a proof that one is indeed fallible. (laughs) It's not a proof that you're infallible on anything at all. Your lack of imagination, one's inability to imagine how things might possibly be otherwise, namely that you could be mistaken, that's a lack of imagination. That's just your fallible mind not being able to do something, namely imagine the possibility that it could be wrong <laughs> so you're not proving your infallibility on the fact that you exist at all <laughs> but it's a minor thing anyway it's an edge case I mean uh, some people want to have this, this one point it's almost like you know Archimedes wanting one place in the universe where if only he could have it he could move the earth <laughs> Some people philosophically want that thing. They need that one thing. I've got got to have this one thing that I'm absolutely certain about and then I can build all the other knowledge and then everything else can follow from that somehow like dominoes. It'll all just fall down and I can be certain of everything and then I can go around telling everyone that I've got the certain knowledge. Don't worry about that. Just worry about having good explanations or not, okay? Worry about being able to find errors and correct them where you can. Don't go down the the silly road of trying to be certain about things. Be absolutely sure about things. That way lies dogmatism. And that way lies tyranny. Let's keep on going. Popper goes on. We can now see more clearly how in this optimistic epistemology... By the way, what's the optimistic epistemology? The idea that we can get to this self-evident certain truth and we can recognise it as such. Okay, so We can now see more clearly how in this optimistic epistemology the state of knowledge is the natural or the pure state of man... The state of the innocent eye which can see the truth, while the state of ignorance has its source in the injury suffered by the innocent eye in man's fall from grace, an injury which can be partially healed by a course of purification. And we can see more clearly why this epistemology, not only in Descartes, but also in Bacon's form, remains essentially a religious doctrine in which the source of all knowledge is divine authority, end quote. Now, that's something that really upsets atheists and rationalists, especially the rationalist atheists, of course, (laughs) that this notion that it's still a religious idea, this idea that you believe in the manifest truth in some way, shape or form. In a sense, it's still this divine idea that certain species of knowledge are absolutely certain. You can't be wrong about it. And there's a way of perceiving it and not erring, okay, not being in error. Or at least of being highly confident and being right about how confident you are. You get to a certain point where you're super highly confident, next to certain, or perhaps certain. In either case, it's all feelings anyway, of course. It's being confident, and being certain. This is not a standard for objective knowledge. As I've said countless times before, whether you've got the divine authority or whether you've got the authority of science, or whether you've got the authority of the experts, or whether you've got the authority of peer-reviewed journals, it doesn't matter, it's all the same error. Okay? This, this way of trying to validate knowledge is incorrect. We need to replace, as Popper says, the question of our sources of knowledge, therefore this authoritarian idea, with how to correct errors, how to come to identify and correct errors. That's the way in which we make progress. Not trying to say, here's my authoritative source, Now we can be sure we've made progress. (laughs) Popper goes on, quote. One might say that encouraged by the divine essences or divine natures of Plato and by the traditional Greek opposition between the truthfulness of nature and the deceitfulness of man-made convention... Bacon substitutes, in his epistemology, nature for God. This may be the reason why we have to purify ourselves before we may approach the goddess Natura. When we have purified our minds, even our sometimes unreliable senses, held by Plato to be hopelessly impure, will be pure. The sources of knowledge must be kept pure, because any impurity may become a source of ignorance, end quote. Isn't that beautiful? So this idea here that Popper is explaining is that what we are doing as people, in reality, would be regarded by Bacon and these other epistemologies as being impure that you introduce some sort of error into your knowledge and therefore it can't be knowledge because the knowledge has to be true but this is just all wrong knowledge does contain error and that doesn't prevent it from being knowledge from being the useful information the information that gets copied and the information that is actually a statement about reality though not finally true it tells you something it tells you something accurate about the world around you or coming to understand it genuinely coming to understand it what's going on in your mind comes to more closely resemble what is actually out there in the universe. So long as you are following this method of error correction, so long as you're not falling into dogmatism, which is something you have to try and guard against. But the dogmatism begins in, the tyranny begins in this idea that you are observing the truth in some way, or you have reasoned your way to the truth, the final truth. So these are the ideas that come to us from Bacon and Descartes. But but there's a virtue in the ideas, this idea that observation is important, of course, and that reason and rationality are important. Of course, there are virtues in this. As Popper goes on to say in part 10, we're up to now, quote, In spite of the religious character of their epistemologies, Bacon's and Descartes' attacks upon prejudice and upon traditional beliefs which we carelessly or recklessly harbour, are clearly anti-authoritarian and anti-traditionalist. For they require us to shed all beliefs except those whose truth we have perceived ourselves. And their attacks were certainly intended to be attacks upon authority and tradition. They were part of the war against authority, which it was the fashion of the time to wage, the war against the authority of Aristotle, and the tradition of the schools. Men do not need such authorities if they can perceive the truth themselves. End quote. So that's, this is great stuff. I sometimes wonder today, given the way some academics speak, as if it's, it's true for me, but not for thee. You know, like the academics and intellectuals seem to think, well, we are liberated from the authority of superstition and higher powers and so on. We are liberated from needing to defer to other people, but not everyone else is. To everyone else, we are now the authority, until perhaps such time comes that the others are properly educated. By us, of course. (laughs) Whatever. Did Bacon and Descartes actually succeed, though, in liberating knowledge from authority? We can actually ask Popper that question. And in the asking, he will give us another one of those breathtakingly beautiful answers. Because he goes on to say, quote, But I do not think that Bacon and Descartes succeeded in freeing their epistemologies from authority. Not so much because they appealed to religious authority, to nature, or to God, but for an even deeper reason. In spite of their individualistic tendencies, they did not dare appeal to our critical judgment, to your judgment, or to mine. Perhaps because they felt that this might lead to subjectivism and to arbitrariness. Yet. Whatever the reason may have been, they certainly were unable to give up thinking in terms of authority, much as they wanted to do so. They could only replace one authority, that of Aristotle and the Bible, by another. Each of them appealed to a new authority, the one to the authority of the senses and the other to the authority of the intellect. This means that they failed to solve the great problem. How can we admit that our knowledge is a human, an all-too-human affair? without, at the same time, implying that it is all individual whim and arbitrariness. Yet this problem had been seen and solved long ago. First, it appears, by Xenophanes, and then by Democritus, and by Socrates. The Socrates of the Apology rather than of the meno. The solution lies in the realisation that all of us may and often do err, singly and collectively, but that this very idea of error and human fallibility involves another one, the idea of objective truth, the standard which we may fall short of. Thus, the doctrine of fallibility should not be regarded as part of a pessimistic epistemology. This doctrine implies that we may seek for truth, for objective truth, though more often than not, we may miss it by a wide margin. And it implies that if we respect truth, we must search for it by persistently searching for our errors, by indefatigable rational criticism and self-criticism. End quote. There we go breathtakingly beautiful philosophical passage fallibilism the notion we can always be mistaken it's just the idea that because of the possibility of being mistaken of being in error then therefore we can with some effort correct errors and make progress which is to say create knowledge we can come to know reality better we don't reach the truth, but in coming closer to reality, we are able to find some truth, some time, some objective truth in our objective knowledge. We just need to be indefatigable in engaging in rational criticism, as Popper says there. Be persistent in searching for errors. It is that which is the road to knowledge. Not the royal road to truth, but rather the road not yet built towards understanding. The road we build, brick by brick, and rather often going back and ripping up the pavers and replacing them with something better. All bricks on our non-royal road are imperfect, and it's always incomplete, and we cannot possibly predict where it's going to go next. All we know is that we're making progress. We're building this road, the road to somewhere better. Popper goes on, quote, Erasmus of Rotterdam attempted to revive this Socratic doctrine, the important though unobtrusive doctrine, Know thyself, and thus admit to thyself how little thou knowest. Yet this doctrine was swept away by the belief that truth is manifest, and by the new self-assurance exemplified and taught in different ways by Luther, Bacon and Descartes. It is important to realise, in this connection, the difference between Cartesian doubt and the doubt of Socrates or Erasmus or Montaigne. While Socrates doubts human knowledge or wisdom and remains firm in his rejection of any pretension to knowledge or wisdom, Descartes doubts everything, but only to end up with the possession of absolutely certain knowledge. For he finds that his universal doubt would lead him to doubt the truthfulness of God, which is absurd. Having proved that universal doubt is absurd, he concludes that we can know securely That we can be wise by distinguishing, in the natural light of reason, between clear and distinct ideas whose source is God and all the others whose source is our own impure imagination. So, on Descartes' view, we've got access to God through our divine souls, and this guarantees that when we clearly and distinctly perceive something with the light of reason, then we have the truth. We have become infallible. You can be sure and certain, or whatever other term you like, for being in the state of inerrant knowledge. One version of Socrates seems to have endorsed something like this with his so-called meutic method of questioning that will end up getting you to the truth, or at least never giving you the possibility of actual knowledge. But of course, we know this isn't quite right. We can get to knowledge because knowledge isn't about Getting to certain truth. And as I as I've already said, we have these kind of two versions, these various versions of Socrates actually, filtered to us through the work of Plato, Plato constructing this character of Socrates. Because in other words, Socrates is the consummate fallibilist, as Popper goes on to explain. Quote Cartesian doubt, as we see, is merely a meutic instrument for establishing a criterion of truth, and with it, a way to secure knowledge and wisdom. Yet for the Socrates of the apology, wisdom consisted in the awareness of our limitations, in knowing how little we know, every one of us, End quote. And that I like to think of as the real Socrates. Of course, that's just a matter of taste. But Socrates, like Xenophanes, seems to me was wise on matters of epistemology. They knew knowledge was indeed possible. It just could not ever be guaranteed true. And indeed, the impulse to search for guarantees, much less think one has a guarantee, was the danger. Fallibilism helped avoid the danger and promote a more humanistic philosophy. Others got there as well, just as Popper goes on to explain, quote, It was this doctrine of an essential human fallibility, which Nicholas of Cusa and Erasmus of Rotterdam, who refers to Socrates, revived. And it was this humanist doctrine, in contradistinction to the optimistic doctrine on which Milton relied, the doctrine that the truth will prevail, which Nicholas and Erasmus, Montaigne and Locke and Voltaire, followed by John Stuart Mill and Bertrand Russell, made the basis of the doctrine of tolerance – What is tolerance? asks Voltaire in his philosophical dictionary. And he answers, quote from Voltaire, It is a necessary consequence of our humanity. We are all fallible and prone to error. Let us then pardon each other's folly. This is the first principle of natural right. End quote from Voltaire. Popper goes on, More recently, the doctrine of fallibility has been made the basis of a theory of political freedom. That is, freedom from coercion. See Hayek, the Constitution of Liberty, end quote. And that's where we'll end it for today. But there we have Popper talking about fallibilism, ultimately. Once we have in hand the idea that, yes, there is virtue in empiricism. Once we have, yes, this idea coming from empiricism, the observations of the real world are important. They're going to allow us to distinguish between theories guests. And, of course, the use of our reason, the careful application of error correction, is going to help us in this construction of this thing called knowledge, and ultimately bringing these things together under a fallibilism framework. This idea that we can always be in error, and it's by correcting the errors that we make progress, is what lies at the heart of humanist doctrines. These ideas around tolerance for other people, pardoning each other's folly, as Voltaire says there. And this idea that we should be free from coercion. Why? Because we can all make mistakes. You shouldn't be coercing someone else because you could be in error. You are fallible, as is everyone else. And this is the basis in Hayek's philosophy of, as explained in his work about liberty, What a deeply optimistic idea and a deeply powerful idea, a deeply fundamental idea. Fundamental idea for philosophy, science, politics, humanity and progress, of course. Well, I don't think I can top what Popper has said so far today. So we're getting up to part 11. So I think we'll leave it here today and we'll pick it up again it just seems to keep getting better and better doesn't it <laughs> this this work by Popper is just uh, I've used the word a few times a breathtaking example of good philosophical writing of giving you a masterclass in this history of ideas and how it is that we've ended up in the optimistic place that we are this of course is kind of the launching pad for David Deutsch in the ideas in the beginning of infinity and the fabric of reality these ideas that coercion is unnecessary and indeed morally abhorrent. There's no virtuous application of coercion against someone. It is the perfect way of stunting progress, of eliminating knowledge creation, because you're coercing someone when you think you certainly have the right idea, but you're error, you're fallible. And if we can all embrace a little bit more fallibilism while also endorsing the idea that we can possess objective knowledge, error containing though it is, then tolerance and progress can be allowed to flourish To a far greater degree, perhaps. We're at a good place, can always move to a better place. But until next time, bye-bye.